Hey, Sam here. I want to take a moment to say thank you for listening. And also, I want to ask you a favor. We want to better understand who is listening, how you're listening, how you're feeling this podcast and other podcasts. To help us do that, I'm asking you right now to complete a short anonymous survey. Here's the link, npr.org slash IBAM survey. All one word, I-B-A-M-S-U-R-V-E-Y. This survey, I promise, takes like 10 minutes max, and it will really help us out. And my bosses will like it if you fill it out. So do this for me, huh? npr.org slash IBAM survey. One word. Thank y'all. Hey, y'all. This is Sam's Aunt Betty. This week on the show, the price of a pandemic and how to make sense of it. All right, let's start the show. Hey, y'all from NPR, I'm Sam Sanders. It's been a minute. This week, coronavirus. Still. On March 11th, COVID-19 was declared a pandemic by the World Health Organization. We knew about COVID even before that. And now, in July, it seems like, at least here in the States, we are no better off in dealing with this thing than we were back then. In many regards, it feels like things are worse now. Four months into this pandemic, I am angry. I thought things were improving. I thought we could find some kind of normal. But neither of those things are true yet. So this episode, we are going to speak to that anger with three people navigating a lot of uncertainty in this pandemic. A bar owner in Houston who's had to close and reopen and maybe close again. A doctor in Florida treating coronavirus patients every day and dealing with public mistrust. But to begin, our first guest is Lori Kilmartin. She was like me. Weeks ago, she thought things were okay. She's in California, and for a while it seemed that state had things under control. But just as the state was beginning to reopen, COVID hit Lori's family. Um, my mom passed away from COVID on June 18th, and I sort of uh, just started tweeting about it. Lori is a comedian and writer for Conan, and she live-tweeted her mom's illness up until watching her mother take her last breath on an iPad screen. Lori's mom's name is Joanne. She was 82 when she was admitted to a nursing home after a hip injury. Not a good situation, but manageable. But just a few days later, Lori got a call. There was a COVID outbreak in that nursing home. When you first get word that there is coronavirus in the nursing home your mother is in, what's the first thing that goes through your head? What's the first emotion you feel? Honestly, I assumed that... Um, they would be on top of it. <laughs> I, I don't know. Yeah. I, that's really dumb. I, I should have been more worried, obviously. But I, I just thought, well, it's not March, you know, where no one knew what to do. It's uh, June and everyone knows about sterilization. And I don't know. I just assumed things would turn out differently than they did. It just felt like, oh, California was at the time doing pretty well. And our elected officials were a lot more responsible than other states elected officials. So I wasn't as worried as I obviously should have been. Yeah. What was your relationship with your mother before she went into the nursing home this last time? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, uh, I would say it's a classic mother daughter. Uh, <laughs> okay. Uh, okay. Were you, uh, you know, 
I loved her and I wanted to strangle her and I would have those feelings simultaneously several times a day. She lived with me. I had been taking care of her for the last four years. She uh, was a Trump supporter. I very actively not one. So we we uh, we would have fights and then uh, we, we'd be mad at each other and, and then let it go. And it was just that just was an ongoing dynamic for about four years. Um, yeah. Yeah. But y'all were still close. Very close. Yes. Okay. Yes. And so all of a sudden, she's in this nursing home. All of a sudden, there's coronavirus in the nursing home. How long before you find out there's an outbreak in this facility before they say, oh, wait, your mother has it too? Maybe... Well, we heard about... Gosh, I don't know the exact day. Maybe there was a couple days when after they said there's an outbreak in the facility and your mom's, you know, she's is being taken via ambulance to a nearby hospital because she had shortness of breath. Um, and then they said, you know, she was getting the, the glassy lungs, the opaque lungs, the COVID lungs. Mm. And so it was really accelerating, but it was like sort of just like realizing, Oh, this is it. And my sister and I, Eileen, uh, we visited her a Monday afternoon And we were there for about an hour and a half and they suited us up and they had a very specific protocol of what things you put on first. And then when you come out of the room, you have to reverse them in this exact order. So we were able to be with her a little bit. I had gloves on, I had two sets of gloves on and I was able to hold her hand and we were able to tell her in person, we're here, we love you. We played Linda Ronstadt And there was a moment where she kind of lifted her head off the bed and she opened her eyes and she couldn't look at us. She just opened her eyes and looked up. So I don't, I don't know what that meant. If she couldn't see if if she was so, it felt like she was trying to rise out of herself for a second and she lifted up one of her hands. And to me, that was her attempt to, you know, respond. And I know you know, and to acknowledge y'all's presence and, and right. probably say thanks for being here. Yeah, I, I definitely know. Had she been able to speak, she would have said, "I love you." So you ha- you have that brief amount of time, like an hour and a half, actually in the room. Mm-hmm. But most of your time with her, as she is fading away in those last few days, is over FaceTime. Once they get the iPad set up with the FaceTime, how long are you and your sister on the FaceTime each day as she's dying? You know, at first we were just calling in, trying to be polite. Hey, can we look at her mom for a few minutes? And then we'd hang up and, you know, we're like, oh, I don't want to hog all the bandwidth or whatever. And then after we saw her, it was like, okay, we're not turning this thing off. (laughs) So we basically left her on for almost 70 hours straight. And she was just on my iPad and we took her all over the house. You know, I slept with her next to me. I'd say goodnight. I, I say, mom, I'm turning down your brightness so I can sleep. Don't be offended. And then wake up in the morning. And if she's still there, still breathing, it's like, Hey mom, we're still here, you know, and, um, just kind of constantly talking to her and reassuring her that she wasn't alone. Mm. So, okay. Here's, here is my question to Lori, the comedian. You're a comic. You're used to doing sets in front of crowds that give you feedback and will talk back to you even sometimes. 
this must have been the hardest set of your life. <laughs> the camera never shuts off, and your mother's not going to tell you if the jokes are good or not. <laughs> how hard was it thinking about or figuring out what to actually say to her or how much to actually say? Um, you know, I wasn't really trying to get my mom to laugh at this point. Um, it was really more just the pitter-patter of the day. You know, I'm, I'm making eggs for my grand, your grandson. I'm doing this. I'm doing that. Opening the mail. I'm throwing away these letters from Donald Trump. <laughs> you know, <laughs> just just kind of stuff like that. Um, so I had also done this with my dad. My dad died in 2014, and he died of lung cancer, and he died at, at home. And, you know, so I, I had I live tweeted that. To me, that's just writing jokes in real time. But um you know, it, it was so stark, the difference between their two hospices. And my dad's was, you know, we had nine days with them and he was in the living room and we never left the living room. We were just hanging out with him the whole time. We had tons of friends coming by, wishing him well, you know, and just sending him off. It was like a parade. And my mom's was so different. Mm. You know, it was everything she was, was afraid of. Yeah. I want to talk more about, you know, finding humor even in this moment of pain. Part of what really took off over the course of your FaceTiming with your dying mother were the live tweets you offered your followers throughout that whole process. I want to read a few because they're just the stuff of legend. They're so good. Um, personally, I loved one that read, quote, I just held an iPad to my chest and wailed. I love you. I love you. I'm sorry. Don't leave me which is great practice for when I use this same iPad for post-core Tinder. <laughs> I mean, just gold. Thanks. Another one. My sister and I are both heartbroken that mom's last words to us were complaints about the nursing home and not about our appearance. <laughs> <laughs> uh, like, you did something that's really, really hard. Turning the immense pain of a parent dying without you being able to be there and making it funny for strangers. Did you have any pause in live tweeting this? And what did you want followers to gain from seeing those tweets? Um, I had no pause in live tweeting. The only thing I paused a little bit about was um, tweeting pictures on my mom. So like I, I would post a picture of her by my bedside, but I sort of cropped it. So you could tell there was an iPad of a person there, but it, you couldn't really see it, who it was, or you couldn't see her just because she would have been mortified to have people see her in that shape. Um, the, the last picture of her I tweeted was from pretty far away. And it was her after she had passed just on the iPad. And it was like, this is my last view of her. She's on the kitchen table. This, mm. You know, this is where I have breakfast, but this mm. is where my mom is now. And then, the next picture I just tweeted that the iPad, you know, turned off and it's like, she, she's gone. Um, Walk I, me through that moment. Oh. So Thursday morning, um, I think I was up around 630 and I took my mom uh, to the kitchen and we decided to just uh, have her on the kitchen table for the morning. And my sister and I were, you know, making breakfast and watching her. And it, we had done this with my dad, too, where you start noticing there's a lot of time between breaths, right? And, and then at one point, you know, there was no new breath. And then after 10 seconds, it's like, oh, God. And then like 20, and then it's a minute. And 
we're like, okay, she just died. And I just wanted to gaze upon her face. Um, and then they came in and after about an hour and they called, I think they called her death like an hour after it actually happened. They said, you know, there's no rush. You can, we can leave this on for another hour or two. And so we took that opportunity and we just left her on and they said, are you ready? And we said, yes. And then they turned off FaceTime and you know, at that FaceTime, it go that disappears instantly. It doesn't, it's not like it goes to the corner of your screen. There's a little, that little noise. Mm-hmm. And then my mother was gone from my life. Are you, I feel like I'm angry for you because it's not fair that your mother's death would happen at the exact most awfulest time when this pandemic strikes and you can't be with her. How you seem so, you seem much more okay with this than I would be. And I wonder if you're angry and if who you're, ang- and, and if so, who you're angry at. Um, I go back and forth. Uh, I've cried a lot and, um, you know, I'm angry that, that California reopened so quickly. I'm angry at every person who went to the beach on Memorial day weekend because, you know, timing wise, it kind of tracks with her coming in contact with someone who, or someone who came in contact with someone who was really careless over a Memorial day weekend. Mm. So um, I, I, here's the thing, like, I, I just wish my mom deserved a better death, you know, yeah. like just everyone wear a mask for three months straight. That's it. And we could have maybe eliminated this thing. Yeah. I want to, just because I, it's etched in my brain now, this scene of you and your sister with the iPad on the kitchen island watching your mother die, was there one thing in that moment that is just seared in your brain? I ask this because this is like triggering thoughts of when my dad died and he was in a hospital and he had end-stage kidney failure and they tried to code blue him at the end. So we had to be in the waiting room while they, I don't know, cracked his ribs to try to bring him back to life. But I'll never forget when they came to tell us in the waiting room of the hospital, the song playing was Faith Hill's Cry. And for the rest of my life, I've hated that song. And whenever I think of my dad dying, whenever I think of that moment, that song comes right back to the forefront of my brain. Like, I'm wondering, was there one thing that you just remember, like a bag of chips on the counter when you, like, something from that scene that will always stay with you, besides the iPad screen? The noise that I'll always associate with that is uh, FaceTime shutting off. That little mm. bloop. There was mm. a different moment that was really surprising. For when my dad died, a lot of people do this. You, you think your dead parent turns into an animal <laughs> or a bird that's watching or something. So <laughs> we're like, um, you know, morning doves travel in pairs. And when my dad died, there was a single morning dove, right? Mm. So we were like, Mom, that's dad. He's watching over us, right? Mm. And so while my mom was dying, I was in the kitchen and I looked out the window and there's a single morning dove on the power wire and looking right at me. It wasn't like looking wow. right, it was looking right at me and wow. Marvin Gaye's What's Going On was playing. I was like, what? Oh my That's God. That's a moment. That <laughs> is, is signs, signs and wonders. Yeah, it was playing. On I KCRW. believe in that stuff. 
And that just, I was so unprepared for that. Like it electrified me. Yeah. Uh, Last note, I got to say one of my favorite tweets you sent about this whole ordeal. This is the last one, I promise. You wrote, Mm -hmm. quote, thank you for sending love to my mom. But really, it's my dead dad who needs your thoughts and prayers. I'm sure he thought he'd get a few more years to himself. (laughs) Yeah. You're really good at this. You're really good at this. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. He got six years, but he probably could have used 10. (laughs) (laughs) Lori, thank you so much for your candor and for sharing your story and for being a good kid to your mom. Um, I really appreciate you, and I'm going to go call my mom now. Yay, good. Thanks so much, Sam. Tell your (laughs) mom I said hi. (laughs) I will, I will. Okay. All right, bye-bye. Bye. Thanks again to Lori Kilmartin. After the break, we head to Houston. We talk with the bar owner trying to balance the health of his employees and his customers with, you know, trying to keep his business afloat. You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. We'll be right back. This message comes from NPR sponsor BetterHelp. BetterHelp offers licensed professional counselors who specialize in issues such as isolation, depression, stress, anxiety, and more. Connect with your professional counselor in a safe and private online environment when you need professional help. Get help at your own time and your own pace. Schedule secure video or phone sessions, plus chat and text with your therapist. Visit BetterHelp.com Minute to learn more and get 10% off your first month. This message comes from NPR sponsor Witness Docs, presenting Unfinished Deep South. The new investigative true crime podcast sets out to answer a dark question looming over a small Arkansas town since 1954. Who lynched Isidore Banks? A wealthy African-American farmer and World War I veteran who found a way to prosper in the Jim Crow South, the show sets out to restore Isidore Banks' legacy. Listen to Unfinished Deep South in Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. Whenever you face a choice, it helps to think like an economist. And this week on Planet Money Summer School, we'll start off our course in economics with a workout for your brain. How to decide what something truly costs. Listen now to Planet Money from NPR. We are back. You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. I'm Sam Sanders. This episode, coronavirus and figuring out the right things to do when there's not a lot of consistent guidance. We heard earlier from Lori Kilmartin. She lost her mom to COVID and she was angry about things reopening too soon. People being out in public and gathering when they shouldn't have been. It haunts her that she will never know if some of those behaviors led to her mother getting coronavirus. But a lot of people across the country trying to reopen, trying to get back to some kind of normal, they're angry and scared as well. And they are also worried about public safety. So I called up a bar and restaurant owner in one of the hottest spots for coronavirus right now, Houston, Texas. So I was taking a look at the Instagram account for your bar, uh, Monkey's Tail, and that chicken fried steak looks so good. Is there... (laughs) bacon on top of the gravy yes sir so what we do we put bacon <laughs> with the gravy we let it cook with bacon fat uh also and we also use nopales which is cactus for the mashed potatoes on the side which have been what? super popular i love it i love it oh my god send me a plate please <laughs> i will <laughs> that is greg Perez. he co-owns monkey's tail in houston for the last few months greg has been on a roller coaster Bars were closed, then opened for takeaway, then opened for sit-down service with limited capacity. But as things keep getting worse in Houston, 
he may be forced to close again. I asked Greg about how he's dealing with all of this and whether he can really keep his workers and customers safe while also trying to keep his bar and restaurant open. So I feel like the bar industry has been demonized here in Texas. Demonized? Uh, I mean, I guess they've, they've been put the blame on this last shutdown, which happened last week. The governor specifically named bars. He's like, we reopened up the bars in case it started to spike again. When they were ignoring all the people on the beach, ignoring these clubs that were operating illegally and these places that weren't doing the right thing. But a lot of these bars were doing it right. They were doing table service. They, it was no different than a restaurant. And so these people that are, you know, bars with no food capability, they were shut down and now they're stuck. Mm. And the first shutdown, they were able to survive. And now it's a lot of them, you know, I'm friends with a lot of these folks and they're honestly, they got question marks. And it really sucks because they were doing it the right way. You know, they they were protecting their employees. Everyone was masked up. They were taking temperatures at the door and some people ruined it for everybody. And... That's the part that's a lot of the bar industry is frustrated yeah. is that not everybody played by the rules and now mm. everybody has to pay the consequences. Yeah. I'm sure you talk a lot with other restaurant and bar owners mm-hmm. who are having various levels of success navigating this mm-hmm. new normal for establishments. Are there folks you know who think they're going to have to close their restaurants or bars down and just not bring them back? Yeah. They just don't know how they're going to do it because rent protection isn't a thing here anymore. So it was only Mm. two months that landowners couldn't evict people. Now landowners are asking for their rent money and they can't pay. They can't pay and there's not much you can do. Does that make you angry? Yeah, that, that pisses me off a lot because it's not like these restaurants and bars are shutting down because they want to or because they have a poor business model. It's because they were forced to. Honestly, uh, it's just anger should be directed to leadership. It's not just one person. It's just the whole system. Uh, protect The interests of few are always protected, and the interests of many are ignored. I mean, if you look at the PPP loan, you see who got money, who didn't. Millionaires and billionaires were getting the money. Yeah. And I know a lot of restaurants and bars who $60,000 would have been the world to them. Yeah. What would it mean for you if you had to close down your bar for good if this pandemic continues and the governor in Texas continues to say you just can't be open? Uh, It would hurt. It would definitely hurt. I have over 20 employees and they all depend on me to making the right decisions and making sure they're making money and making sure they can pay their bills and put food on their table. You know, they're, they're putting their trust in me to make the right choices. And if I were to close down and tell them, Hey, guys, you're going to have to figure this out yourself. There's nothing I can do. I would feel like another failure. Yeah. Are you hopeful about the future, worried about the future? What's your emotional state looking at the next few months where this thing still might be with us for a while? Uh, Right now, I'm hopeful. And uh, a couple months ago, when we were complete shutdown, only doing carry out and delivery, I wasn't. You know, I was like... You know, if this thing goes too long, I don't know if we can stay open. Uh, Now I am a little hopeful uh, just because we are open. You know, we're paying what we're supposed to pay. And I'm counting my blessings because there's a lot of my friends that aren't. You know, you turn around and you realize there's a lot of places that aren't going to survive in the next couple of months. And you're holding your breath. It's not somebody you really care for, you know. Thanks again to Greg Perez, owner of The Monkey's Tale in Houston, Texas. 
After the break, we try to clear up some of the mixed messaging on coronavirus. And we talk about why, after months of living with this thing, a lot of it still feels really murky. BRB. Hello. It's been a minute, listeners. Sam here. I mean, you know it's me. It's me. What's up? I got to ask you a favor. We want to better understand who is listening to this show and how you're using podcasts and what you like and don't like about this one and others. So uh, if you don't mind, help us out by filling out a short anonymous survey at npr.org slash ibamsurvey. It's all one word. I-B-A-M-S-U-R-V-E-Y. IBAM is the acronym for It's Been a Minute. Mm-hmm. Now you know. All right, this thing takes about 10 minutes. It's really easy. It will help us out, and it will make my bosses happy. And wouldn't you want that? That link, again, npr.org slash ibamsurvey. One word. Hook us up. Fill it out. Thank you. This message comes from NPR sponsor Verbo. Summer is here, and vacation is just a drive away. Search thousands of nearby vacation rentals on Verbo to find your family a private home all to yourselves, where you can spread out, chill out, and feel that vacation feeling again together. Book the home that makes the vacation. Download the Verbo app. That's V-R-B-O. Support for this podcast and the following message come from the Walton Family Foundation, where opportunity takes root. More information is available at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. The past is never past, and every headline has a history. I'm Ramtin Arablouei. I'm Randa Abdel Fattah, and we're the hosts of Throughline, NPR's history podcast. Each week, we go back in time to better understand the present, bringing lesser-known stories and perspectives to the surface. Subscribe and listen to Throughline from NPR. You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. I'm Sam Sanders. One thing that's been a constant in this pandemic, for me or probably you as well is uncertainty. It feels like on any given day, every message we get from government leaders or from journalists or from medical experts themselves, they don't all fit together. So I called up Dr. Olvin Carrasquillo in Miami this week. He is the chief of general internal medicine at the University of Miami Health System. Dr. Carrasquillo told me, yeah, we are all getting a bunch of mixed messages on COVID right now. He took a break from treating coronavirus patients in his hospital to tell me why that's the case what it would take to fix that messaging problem, and how all of us can absorb this COVID info a little bit better. Dr. Oveen, hi, how are you? Hi, how are you? We are doing well here in Florida. Uh, Very busy, but uh, holding up. Busy is a word for it. I'm sure you're seeing a lot of coronavirus cases these days. What does it look like in your office, in the hospitals right now? Correct. I'm actually uh, covering one of the teaching COVID teams right now in our public hospital partner, Jackson Memorial Hospital. So... The last report uh, I got is across the public hospital system. There's over 400 patients. And in our main hospital here where we work, we have three over 300 patients. Um, you know, our hospital emergency room has many patients waiting for beds. Yesterday, there were 30-something. Today, I think it's a little bit better. We are seeing a little bit of a difference when we're doing this in April. Uh, they're younger patients. They're very sick, but most of them come through it. So we're not seeing the super high mortality that was happening two months ago. It's a little bit uh, discouraging that, you know, this had to happen, that we had the second wave come. I think we definitely opened up too soon. I think the messaging kind of got a little bit muddled. I think people really confused the opening up with things are back to normal. Yeah. So I want to talk about that because one of the questions I've been grappling with for the last several weeks is... 
why does all the public health messaging around coronavirus seem so scattershot? You know, some people are saying coronavirus is airborne. Some are saying it's not. Some are saying don't worry about transmission via surfaces. Some are saying do. Some are saying kids can go back to school. It's fine. Others are saying you can't do that. Even questions about can you jog with or without a mask. I just feel like I've been hearing mixed messages from the start. Am I correct in seeing that? Yes. um, Any of the categories that you mentioned, um, take one where we really don't know with jogging. Um, You can say something like the most prudent thing for people to do would be to wear masks by jogging. That way you present any, you protect any other joggers that you're uh, running by. And at the same time, if you're running by another jogger, you'd reduce your chance of getting infected by somebody who's potentially um, asymptomatic. So even in things where the evidence is not that great, you know, as in how far, you know, can a jogger transmit, you would give a clear public health message that even though we don't have great evidence, this is what we think is the best thing to do, rather than a lot of these muddled messages you were getting yeah it also seems like even the public health experts they have their own different approaches on like levels of risk you can interview five public health experts who know a lot about coronavirus and they'll have five different answers on whether or not i should be washing my groceries once i get home um so help me tease that out this is no different it's public health but it's no different from a clinical encounter when you're trying to provide um, clinical advice to your patient when the evidence is inexact. And unfortunately there, I, it's an age-old um, you know, example that I use, but I say, what would you want for your mother? Mm. Well, if it was my mom or you know, one of my relatives, this is what I would recommend because that's what patients really want to know. Uh, at the end of the day, you say, well, these are the pluses, these are the minuses. They say, well, what would you want for me? And I think public health is the same thing. And I think sometimes when the evidence is inexact, that's the message that we should do. What would we think is in the best interest of our family? Clearly, in something like COVID, I don't think you'll get very few public health people that'll tell you indoor gatherings without face masks and social distancing is a good thing to do. Yeah. So I want to just, I guess, check in to the best we can at the end of the f- first full week of July. Where do we have good evidence and where do we have not so good evidence? I think the evidence pretty much proves that we all should be wearing masks. But there are other areas where it's still unclear, particularly this whether or not this thing is airborne or not. Where do we stand on that right now? So, so there's a lot of yeah, there's a lot of public health things where we don't have great evidence, but we do know one it's we definitely know that aggressive isolation measures worked. I mean, we were able to Florida is a perfect example. We had rising numbers. We were going in April down the same route that New York had. We instituted certainly here in the county very aggressive uh, you know, measures. Uh, it did hammer the economy, but they did work. So there's some things that we know clearly worked. As far as the masks, we have pretty good evidence that masks are very good. We have very good evidence that it is aerosolized. So if we told people to wear masks and at the end we're wrong, we're not making that much of a mistake. So that's where the public health messaging, you get a committee together and you say, all right, we don't have 100% evidence, but this is probably the most prudent and best thing to do. And that's how I approach a lot of these issues. Restaurants is a big one. So how about indoors? We're pretty certain that indoor Mm -hmm. spread you know, does happen, close confined places. We don't know how apart the table should be. But I would say the same thing that um, now we're learning with the numbers going up, with things getting worse. We have no choice but like we're doing here in the county to ban indoor dining for now until we see how things play out. And probably when we open up, we want to do a lot stricter about the mask wearing and everything else uh, when these things happen. 
Yeah. Hearing you say that we should be a lot more nuanced in all this messaging around coronavirus, what advice would you give to the governors and health officials and mayors around the country and journalists covering the story as well to move forward and do this messaging better? Well, I mean, I can talk to journalists and uh, public health officials. Politicians obviously have a political agenda. You know, their agenda is about things like getting reelected and winning more votes and not necessarily, um, and you know, I mean, it's sad. It's extremely sad. But, you know, the journalists and the public health people who are much more about protecting the health of the public, I think there you do need to, you know, acknowledge when you've done a mistake um, and tell people, I don't know yet, but I think this is what we think should do right now based on the best evidence we have. This is what we think is most prudent. Uh, and this would be my best advice right now. Yeah. You know, like I tell my residents on rounds, um, you know, we think this today, but Fully in mind, we may get more information in two days that may change how we treat this patient. And it's the same way in public health. This is what we think is best today. And as we get more information, we'll adapt our messages and what we tell people. Yeah. For listeners hearing this conversation, give them one last bit of advice to be better news consumers in this moment, better citizens, and just better at dealing with all this uncertainty. Please listen to the people that are the experts. Um, Try not to listen to the different political people that are fighting. Please wear your masks at all times. Yeah. Well, doctor, it's so good uh, to talk with you. You helped put me at ease a little bit, and I'm sure it's going to be helpful to our listeners as well. Uh, stay safe out there in Florida. We are all rooting for you. Thank you. Pleasure. Thanks again to Dr. Olin Carrasquillo in Miami. Now it's time to end the show as we always do. Every week, listeners share the best thing that happened to them all week. We encourage folks to brag, and they do. Let's hear a few of those submissions. Hi, Sam. It's Erin Sexauer from South City. And the best part of my week was harvesting five cucumber and one large zucchini from my tiny urban backyard South City garden. Gardening has really been a lifeline through quarantine, so it's been nice to... uh eat the fruits of my labor. Hi, Sam. This is Sarah calling from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And the best part of my week this week was that I took my PhD qualification exams in economics and I found out that I passed. The best thing that happened to me this week was that I retired after 16 years of being a school principal. Hi, Sam. It's Sam from Ann Arbor, Michigan. And the best part of my week has been being able to hug my mom whenever I'm feeling down. Um, I've been home from college for just over four months now, but the feeling's never getting old. It feels so nice to be able to hug her in person. Hey, Sam. This is Holly in Arcata, California. And the best part of my week was overhearing my partner in the other room belting I will always love you to our weird little mutt. It was just the greatest. Thanks so much. Have a great week. Thanks for your show. I love it. Thanks a lot, Sam. See ya. Thanks as always to Whitney Houston and to those listeners, Holly, Sam, Elise, Sarah, and Aaron. You can be a part of this segment. Just record the sound of your own voice on your phone, sharing the best part of your week, and send that audio file to me at samsanders at npr.org. samsanders at npr.org. 
This week, the show was produced by Janae West, Anjali Sastry, and Andrea Gutierrez. Our fearless editor is Jordana Hochman. Our director of programming is Steve Nelson. And our big boss is NPR's senior VP of programming, Anja Grunman. All right, till next time, stay safe, stay healthy. I'm Sam Sanders. We'll talk soon.